0: you've flicked the pages of your Bible shut, Uh, that was page 1156, page 1156, and actually for today and for the three weeks following, we're going to spend four weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, thinking together about what it means to have a hope in the bodily resurrection from the dead, Uh, and today we really settle in to what Paul has to say about Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection that shapes our own hope of resurrected bodies. Well, I wonder if you're familiar with the phrase, to be dead and buried, to be dead and buried. Uh, It's just a a common turn of phrase that I realised this week probably has its origins in the Apostles' Creed that we'll recite together, after today's sermon. Uh, It's a phrase that gets used from everything as a kind of a lame title for 1980s zombies movies, through to just expressing this idea that something is really, really dead, that it's done for, that there's no hope of it coming back and returning. To be dead and buried. It seems like kind of a, a redundant expression, doesn't it though? What on earth could be more emphatic than simply being dead? Given that there's typically never any coming back from death, what are we even hoping to communicate by adding the phrase and buried on the end of that little sentence? I guess that adding and buried following after dead simply expresses something of that sheer hopelessness the suffocating weight that can settle upon us as we come to terms with the tragic reality of something coming to an end. The sheer weight of grief, like a heaped-up mound of burial earth, pressing down upon us the crushing reality of what has been lost, of something that is now dead to us and not going to return. Dead and buried... It communicates an ending, doesn't it, that no amount of human ingenuity can escape from underneath. It communicates an ending that no clever cleverness or media spin can reframe as a win. To speak of something as dead and buried is to speak of an ending that no intensity of human will or affection or feeling can hope to revive. That no amount of human spirit can breathe new life into to be dead and buried, speaks of the kind of ending that leaves little room for anything other than despair. And that is precisely where Easter Day begins, with Jesus dead and buried. Uh, Have a look with me at the opening verses of our passage. Chapter 15, I'll read from verses 1 into the start of verse 3. Paul writes, to the church in Corinth. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, of the good news that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance." that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried. The unwelcome reality of death has never been something that the Christian faith has politely tiptoed around and been awkward or anxious about mentioning or addressing directly. Jesus' emphatic deadness was a historical fact of first importance for the Christian faith, that Jesus was truly both dead and buried, is a critical foundation for what Christians believe. As we were reminded on last Friday, on Good Friday, God's very forgiveness of our sins, of our failings, depends upon the historicity of Jesus having genuinely died. Uh, Later this evening, in fact, today, two of our brothers and a sister are going to be baptised, And as they are baptised, they will be buried underwater, so to speak, like a a visual sermon almost, of Jesus' willingness to die their literal death for them, in their place, when He died on the cross. Christ died and was buried, so that ultimately, they might not have to, and the same is true for all of us, who trust in the Lord Jesus. Jesus. But not only does Paul testify to Jesus as being dead and buried, he also proclaims Jesus as having been both raised and seen. From its very earliest days, Christianity insisted that it was a historical faith, an eyewitness faith, not a mystical or a blind faith. Have a look with me at the verses that follow. We'll we'll glance again at verse 3 and I'll continue on from verse 3. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Hundreds of eyewitnesses affirm the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, Paul says. Christianity, from its earliest days, insisted that this was critical to the integrity of the faith to which they held. Uh, in fact, Paul describes here, and then we read of others in the Gospel accounts, especially those women who were the first to witness Jesus' resurrection from the dead, close to 600 witnesses of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, 600 Uh, I've got up here on the screen, it's a bit of a a ludicrous comparison, Uh, Summer Hill uh, and Jerusalem. In fact, the population, the current day population of Summerhill Hill is pretty close to the population of Jerusalem in Jesus' own day. Uh, Historians guess some between 60,000 to 70,000 people living in Jerusalem at around about the time of Jesus' resurrection Summer Hill has about 81,000. Think about it just for us here in Summer Hill. If 600 of our own neighbours, the people that we're in soccer clubs with, those that we chat to down at the coffee shops, those who we speak to over the, the, the school fence as we drop off our kids at school, 600 of them could testify to having seen and spoken with A resurrected person in the flesh. That was what was true of what Paul is describing here, for Jesus' own bodily resurrection from the dead. But it's not just the sheer number of witnesses that are remarkable about this account that Paul refers to. It's also who we actually find amongst those witnesses that should really grab our attention, that we should take careful note of. Firstly there, I want to point out James, James the Paul that mentions here, is Jesus' own brother. In fact, it's Jesus' younger brother, James. Jesus' younger brothers were on public record as being sceptics of Jesus' ministry. They had publicly mocked what they considered to be Jesus' public persona to the world. They were not believers. The Scriptures record it. I wonder if any of you here today are younger brothers. I wonder if any of you here today have older brothers. What would it take to convince you that your older sibling is the Messiah? Who'd ever confess their brother as God's own son unless there was an impossibly compelling reason to do so? especially when you would not stake your own public reputation on having mocked their grand, exalted claims during their lifetime. Uh, Even more surprising, though, perhaps, is the way in which Paul, who's writing this passage to the church, describes his own meeting the resurrected Jesus. Uh, I wonder if you notice there, he describes himself as one who was abnormally born. That's an unusual phrase, isn't it? To speak of His coming to faith as being born in an abnormal kind of way. Literally, that phrase there just means to be a forcefully induced birth, a birth that has been brought on against the flow and intentions of nature, a birth to faith that would never have happened of its own natural accord. Uh, Perhaps some of us here have had to go through an induction, can be a slightly traumatic and uncomfortable experience. That's the kind of thing that Paul is describing here, a birth that came about not because of his own will, but one that was forced upon him as he witnessed the resurrected Jesus himself. Uh, Verse 9, if you glance down there, in verse 9 and what follows, Paul recounts how he himself had been violently engaged in persecuting Jesus' own followers. He had committed himself to the personal mission of seeing the Christian faith dead and buried before it even really got going. That was what he had committed himself to do. Paul oversaw the systematic arrest and even the murder of several people in a ruthless attempt to flatten the curve of the quickly growing Christian church. Perhaps you've been hearing on the news uh, the reports that it seems like in China that they're still attempting to enforce a COVID zero policy, or at least they're trying to keep no kind of COVID spreading at all. I guess you could think of Paul's attitude in a similar kind of way. His was a, a zero church policy. He wanted to make sure that he deadened this whole movement before it had a chance to spread beyond his own nation of Israel. And all of that ended up, that all of that ended, Paul's aim and intention to to, to kill off the church, all of it ended the moment that God reached in and dragged Paul kicking and screaming out from the comfortable, secure womb of his own disbelief to face the immovable, physical reality of the resurrected Jesus standing before him. Meeting the bodily resurrected Jesus effectively aborted Paul's fierce ambition to see the Church of God dead and buried for good. The point that Paul has been making here is that Jesus' resurrection displays God's power to bring life to that which human flesh is powerless to give life, to bring life to that which, from our own perspective, is pretty much as good as dead and buried... It's interesting, though, that despite this description that Paul gives of God's power in the resurrection, in verse 12 we see that it seems pretty clear the Corinthians were, well, they were a bit apathetic. The church to which he's writing was a bit apathetic about the actual implications, the relevance of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. It seems that Jesus' resurrection was at best considered an optional extra amongst the Christian community in that Greek city of Corinth. Uh, have a look with me at verse chapter 15. I'll read from verse 12. Verse 12. Paul here is addressing some of the ideas that have been being preached in Corinth. And he writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Perhaps not all of us need convincing that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Uh, In fact, a survey that was done in Australia, so this isn't an American survey or a British survey, an Australian survey, came up with this stat, I think it's up there on the screen, that 44% of Australians confess to believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. And a further 26 confess to really being a bit unsure, not really knowing, not really knowing what to think of the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's perhaps not as unusual to believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead as some of us might think. But perhaps, even those of us who genuinely are convinced of Jesus' own bodily resurrection from the dead, find ourselves not all that moved by the reality of His resurrection. Perhaps we're left a little bit unsure about what would even change for us if we let it slip off our mental map, until Easter rolled around again in a year's time. If we didn't think about Jesus' resurrection for another whole year until it was forced upon us as we rocked up here again at church in Easter 2023. Friends, if we've perhaps begun to slip into a fog of apathy about what difference Jesus' bodily resurrection actually might make, then Paul seeks to blow away some of that mist of indifference in the closing few verses of today's passage. Have a look with me at our closing verses uh, from verse 17. Verse 17. Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are, of all people, most to be pitied. Friends, if we fail to consistently embrace the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it will ultimately have three consequences. It will bury our confidence as we stand before God. It will breed despair in the face of the death of our loved ones. And it will turn our glorious hope into what is really going to be just a pitiful and vain, vague optimism. Let's have a reflection on on those few observations as we finish off our time together this morning. First of all, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, Paul says, we are still in our sins. Our faith in God, our trust in God's goodness is vain and futile. While Jesus died to settle our debt of sin to God it's His bodily resurrection from the dead that gives us confidence that God actually accepted His sacrifice on our behalf. Uh, I wonder if, um, you know, there's ever a time in the future when you find yourself on a trip to Kmart together with me, you might find me a little bit more jittery than I normally tend to be in demeanour and that's probably because with a disturbing degree of regularity, whenever I visit a store like Kmart or Big W, I am almost always routinely pulled over as I'm leaving the store to be checked for shoplifting goods. I don't know if it means that I am looking particularly shady or shifty, if I just have a general air of suspicion about me, maybe it just happened so many times that I've just got this general anxiety and nervousness that they can notice my twitching and they suspect there must be something going on with me, but I get pulled over every single time and I still experience this instinctive anxiety that I'm about to get pulled over, stopped and checked. And so I've developed this nervous tick of just instinctively, as I'm walking towards the checkout or the exit, of just patting my pocket to see that I've got a receipt in my pocket for anything that I have on me, I'm anxious that without the receipt, I'm going to find myself exposed and with no good answer for myself. A receipt is a concrete reminder that our debts, what we owe, has already been paid, that there can be no accusation levelled against us No further payment demanded from us. It's a concrete sign of confidence. And, friends, that's what Jesus' resurrection from the dead is for us. It's a receipt, it's a sign of confidence that Jesus has accepted his payment on our behalf that we might rest at ease. No need to pat our pocket for any kind of good deeds or past actions to justify ourselves when we come before God. It is Jesus' resurrection from the dead that grounds our confidence and assures us that God has gladly cancelled the debt that once had stood against us. Secondly, if we fail to consistently embrace Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, we'll be more vulnerable to despair. Despair for those precious brothers and sisters who have been lost to us in death. Uh, In a sense, this whole COVID-19 thing has been an unwelcome but potent reminder, hasn't it, of just how dependent we human beings are upon the need for physical proximity to others, to actually be physically in one another's presence. There's actually no real substitute for being in another's bodily presence, is there? Perhaps you've noticed that as you've had to try and make do with Zoom or with other some other some other form of communication over past years to be simply destined for some vague disembodied spiritual afterlife existence some vague spiritual life of eternity would be about as inviting as being having to log into a an eternal Zoom meeting perhaps having some disembodied communication with one another, but not in each other's physical presence. Friends, we are physical creatures. You know what it is to be in the presence of another that you love, to know what they sound like, what they feel like, what they smell like, how they speak. Even just to be aware of what their presence is like beside us. Friends, there is no concrete hope disembodied from who God has made us as His creatures. Without the bodily resurrection of the dead, those fellow believers who have died are lost to us for good. Rather than being separated from us by only a momentary and temporary sleep, they would have been extinguished forever, never to be sensed or known or been with again. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead opens up for us the possibility that we'll once again enjoy each other's genuine bodily presence. And in the following weeks, next three Sundays, we're going to reflect on what it looks like to actually hope for the resurrected body, what kind of resurrected body it is that we have placed our hope and our confidence in. It's not enough for someone simply to live on in our memory, that is not enough to sustain Christian hope. The resurrection guarantees that even the isolating threat of a pandemic or a plague or having passed away into death need not distance us from one another forever. And then finally, if we fail to genuinely embrace Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, it will likely dissolve our weighty Christian hope into little more than a vain and pitiful sort of generalised optimism. We have a good many reasons in Australia to be optimistic about the life that we enjoy, but in our more reflective moments, we know just how quickly the good times can dissolve from in front of us. A lost job, an unravelling relationship, an unexpected or unexplained flood of anxiety that paralyzes us, abandonment by the dearest of our friends. We well know just how quickly this mortal life can extinguish vain and superficial expressions of optimism about the future. That optimism can vanish quickly, can't it? Terrifyingly quickly sometimes. But Jesus' bodily resurrection holds out to us the kind of solid hope that doesn't depend on us. For unlike the generalised, perky optimism that marks so much spirituality, the hope of sharing in Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead doesn't depend upon our own fleeting mood or willpower to keep our spirits up, to establish and to sustain our hope or our optimism. Jesus' resurrection embodies the kind of hope that doesn't require us to minimise our present pains. Jesus' resurrection embodies the kind of honest hope that doesn't require us to mute our protesting griefs or to deny our ingrained anxieties. Jesus' resurrection embodies a hope that can survive being dead and buried underground, even in the absence of all breath and brightness. Jesus' bodily resurrection embodies the kind of hope that endures, even in the complete absence of our own agency, our own ability and our own action. For in Jesus' resurrection, God has displayed a power that alone can raise to life all that even now might seem dead and buried to us. That is the hope that has been entrusted to us this Easter day and indeed every Sunday that we meet with one another in remembrance of Christ, who even now lives and reigns for us. Let me pray. Our dearest Father, we are on occasions overwhelmed by that which has been most precious to us but seems dead and buried. We ultimately, each Father, will face that fear of perhaps even ourselves approaching our own death and burial, that which isolates us from, that distances us from, all that we delight in, all that those that we love and care for, all that we have put our hands to over the course of our lives, Father, death can feel suffocating and paralyzing. And yet we praise You for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, that in His life, we too have the concrete receipt of Your promise to raise us to life as well. And so, Father, we do ask that even in the midst of darkness, or distraction, especially this Easter, but every Sunday, it might be to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that our eyes are directed, so that our hope might be sustained, that it might endure, and that we might rest in it, until that day in which we see you face to face, and enjoy being bodily reunited with one another as well, once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we've heard God uh, address us in his word this morning we've we've read of how Christ has won this victory uh, through